If chocolate is your weakness, real chocolate decadence of Flava Naturals Performance Dark Chocolate can be your strength. Extensive research demonstrates the remarkable benefits of daily cocoa flavanols on brain and heart function including a recent Harvard study showing a 27% reduction in cardiovascular death. The FDA recently issued a qualified health claim saying that high flavanol cocoa powder may help prevent cardiovascular disease. It may even be a helpful tool in managing cognitive decline. Flavanol Naturals dark chocolate bars and cocoa powder deliver five to nine times the flavanols of typical dark chocolate with great flavor and minimal sugar. Their secret is sourcing premium, high flavanol cocoa beans and processing them naturally. The result is decadent dark chocolate with the flavanol levels needed to fuel brain and cardio performance. I use it every day. For more information and to order, just go to flavanaturals.com. There you'll find the extensive research behind cocoa flavanol's benefits and great recipes too. That's flavanaturals.com. Welcome to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman. I'm very much looking forward to this podcast. Not that I don't look forward to most of my podcasts, but I'm especially interested in talking to today's guest about a subject that we really haven't broached here on Intelligent Medicine. It is kind of a counterintuitive subject because we often exalt plant-based diet as the ultimate source of healthy nutrients and indeed it's true that plants provide us uh, with beneficial phytochemicals but there is some paradoxical information about what happens when we go whole hog <laughs> excuse the expression on a plant-based diet uh, because uh, for some people uh, there may be some deleterious effects with me is sally Norton. Uh, she is a master in public health who holds a nutrition degree from Cornell University. Uh, she uh, has become a leading expert on dietary oxalate, which includes a prior career working at major medical schools and medical education, public health research. Uh, she has undergone a personal transformation, which inspired research that led to her book, which just came out this year, Toxic Superfoods, how oxalate overload is making you sick and how to get better from Rodale Press. It's available everywhere books are sold. You can also uh, get information about the book at her website, sallyknorton.com. Sally, uh, welcome to Intelligent Medicine. Thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you. It's great to be with you. And, you know, sometimes when I interview people, I have a very deep understanding of the subject that we're going to talk about. So we kind of do a, a duet. Uh, but with this subject, I, I must confess, I have kind of a limited understanding. Some of my understanding comes from my medical training, where we did recognize that oxalates could be a problem, but only in a very narrow kind of framework, where we recognize that people with kidney stones, uh, the predominant form of kidney stones are calcium oxalate stones. So we recognize that for some people, they either make or consume too many oxalates. It may be a matter of metabolism. Uh, these uh, then uh, precipitate as stones. And so that uh, calls for a low oxalate diet. But you've really, in your book and through your research, you really opened our lens on pervasive problems that may be related to oxalate. Yes, 
right? No, oh, it's complete surprise, complete. And those of us in the health field ha- are in no position to understand it at all. Whatever limited education we have, we've basically been miseducated into minimizing the toxic effects of the toxin that we're consuming all the time. It's really sad. Well, tell us a little bit about your own personal experience because you underwent a bit of a transformation. You actually, uh, as many uh, nutrition-oriented people, uh, became a vegetarian. I believe you were vegetarian until uh, the turn of the century. But then you had kind of a revelation (laughs) and uh, I guess a bit of a a personal health crisis that prompted a change. So tell us about that. Yeah, 16 years vegetarian, half of it, the second half was vegan because, you know, that's what I was told was the right thing to do, (laughs) including at Cornell. It was considered the, the greatest thing when I was in school that the dietitians were now approving vegetarian diets is considered to be nutritionally adequate. So, yeah, I did all that and did everything right with growing food and selecting the best quality fresh food, cooking at home, organic whenever possible. Even when I first started college, I would go buy produce based what was on sale and cook my meals at home all through college when I, I had to leave Cornell for foot surgery because I ended up toddling around campus and needed a car to get, you don't use a car in Cornell campus, but I needed that. That was the crazy, it was. This is at the tender age of what? 19. Oh my goodness. Okay. So we're not talking about, you know, age related uh, osteoarthritis. No, and at the same age, I was having gout symptoms too. And the doctor's like, oh, you got gout. I can, why would an 18 to 19 year old vegetarian teetotaler have gout. <laughs> Nobody seems to care about that question either. And it turns out that with my healthy diet undermining my health, I started getting arthritis pains as a 12-year-old, had lots of arthritic problems in my 20s. I would blow up with, you know, episodes that would swell up and weaken my hand so much I had trouble unlocking a door. Wow. I'm 19 years old. And I had to leave Cornell for foot surgery. And had a double sesamoidectomy. This is a little bone that, that are shock-absorbing bones underneath the big toe area. And I didn't recover well from that. I, I had to finally go back after a four-year leave of absence. I was still on ibuprofen. They had me on insane amounts of it. Year surgery. Still needing car or crutches and things like that. And I'm still growing Swiss chard in my garden as a college student. And, and and you did not no. suspect that there was a dietary connection. You thought that there was, you know, just a medical disease. Maybe you were genetically prone to some form of uh, yeah, exactly. juvenile like, arthritis you know, or something like that. Bad yeah. luck. Yeah. Yeah. And I had, but I had tried to get in shape after high school, and I lived in a, a basement bedroom that was carpeted concrete. So that attempt to get fit with a twenty-minute little morning routine after I get out of bed, I was blaming that hard floor. But you shouldn't break at age nineteen. Mm-hmm. So I didn't figure out that the foot problems, along with many other problems like the arthritis and fatigue and all kinds of issues that became to the point where I had to leave my career completely. Now, I had modified my hours at work at times because I knew I couldn't do an academic job. That A full-time academic job is really about 55-plus hours a week with evenings are never guaranteed to be yours. So, you know, I took a carved back salary so I could be sure to say no at night, you know, and because I just didn't have the energy to work that hard. 
And eventually I had to leave my career completely. And it turned out it's because I had an undiagnosed problem with endometriosis. I had an undiagnosed sleep disorder. I had no idea. My brain was waking up 29 times an hour. So <laughs> after a total hysterectomy, which a health nut like me should not be needing, I had three years of not knowing really why I had a sleep disorder. And eventually I had this breakthrough understanding, which is too long a story to bother with today. But fundamentally, I came to recognize that the high oxalate food in my diet had contributed to my years of arthritis. So I was attempting to change my diet yet again for the unseen time to address the sleep disorder. And I discovered this arthritis connection. And so begrudgingly, I adopted a, a more serious and correct low oxalate diet, which is not easy to do because the information about where oxalate's hanging out in food is not readily available in an accurate form. Hmm. Well, that's an important point because, there, you know, there are many tables and, you know, we learned them, you know, back in medical school about which foods were high in oxalate and many urologists prescribe a low oxalate diet for their patients who have kidney stones. But you're saying that that information isn't even legit. It's terrible. When I did my research, when I did get on the, the uh, oxalate stick and started like scratching my head, where how could this be? How could I reverse the old foot problem 30 years later? How could I get my sleep working again and my brain working again? Have all this relief. So in the research, I would do things like crack open the textbooks at the medical library. And for example, the nursing textbook from 2014 has a list in the chapter about how to treat liver and kidney disease with low oxalate diet and that little one page list has only 38 items on it and 10 of them were wrong and are not high oxalate foods and that list was provided to the textbook authors by the american dietetics folks yep mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> i mean it's which is why fail. i have some uh, some degree list. of skepticism for that uh that group yeah well for that group but also the fact that you get miseducated in school and you trust your textbooks. And if you as a patient are going to see someone in conventional healthcare, they're working with terrible information that's coming from either the USDA or mm -hmm. the Dietetics Association. Mm -hmm. Well, let's, let's back up a little bit and let's, uh, what are oxalates? Can you explain and why should they be uh, harmful? Is it an allergy? Is it a toxicity? Uh, what is it about them that creates such a wide spectrum of problems. Yes, that's a very important distinction. Oxalates are a natural chemical occurring in nature that is plants like to make and it's in foods we trust. Foods we imagine are safe in any quantity are laced with oxalic acid and calcium oxalate crystals that plants deliberately build for their own metabolism, physiology, survival, and self-defense. And this truly is a toxin problem like ala, mercury, and lead. It's not like gluten where I'm a, I have a special immune system that's bothered by gluten or a special gut problem. It's not like that. Um, although there's a strong argument for the toxicity of lectins and other compounds that plants make um, that makes them a challenge for human beings to be trying to live on. Is it uh, does it have something to do with the way that oxalate looks like on a mic under a microscope? Because uh, as far as I can remember, they it has kind of a jagged needle like uh, configuration. 
Uh, does that make it more of an irritant to the mucous membranes and, you know, wherever it finds its way into the body? Well, you know, oxalate takes many different forms. It, it is mm-hmm. a free ionic acid, and then it can crystallize out into um, nanocrystals, and both of those forms are invisible under the microscope. But you can then build these up into uh, microcrystals that are visible under a microscope, mm-hmm. and those can build up big enough to become a kidney stone, which is visible to the naked eye, right? So there's these different amounts of... Uh, building of crystals, but crystals themselves, nanoparticles, nanocrystals, and microcrystals are known to be uh, bad for cells. The, the ones that the plants build, the plants build six, seven, eight shapes of them, but one in particular is called the raphide, and it's a toothpick-shaped shard, and it's hard, harder than teeth. I think of it as like granite or glass, mm-hmm. built in these toothpick shapes in bundles of two, three hundred, they are literally designed as arrows that can puncture mucous membrane. Hmm. And when you do things like you blenderize your kiwi and your vegetables, you liberate these crystals. You don't damage them. They're Mm -hmm. very durable. You just liberate them to be freely abrasive. So there's mechanical abrasion. There's also a certain degree of electromagnetic effects because crystals are this formation, this lining up of molecules in such a way that certain certain what we call the face of a crystal, certain, you know, facet. If you think of a diamond, it has these different facets. So a different facet has a different electromagnetic charges and tendencies. And that gives it a sort of electromagnetic toxicity as well, which for a a living cell membrane is trouble Mm because cell membrane's life depends on being able to control kind of battery-like control over the positive and negative charges around the cell membrane. Is it fair to say that, you know, one of the healthiest things imaginable, you know, a lot of people uh, do this on a routine basis, uh, a kale shake or a spinach shake, (laughs) you know, that if you imbibe that on a daily basis that you could do some damage to your intestinal lining, perhaps increase the risk of uh, intestinal permeability, leaky gut syndrome, something along those lines, and that may be a gateway to a multitude of disorders. Absolutely. And, and the original um, dawning of recognition of dietary oxalates causing systemic health problems that go beyond urinary tract problems like kidney stones happened in the late 1830s, and it was given a name, the dietary oxalate poisoning was called oxalate, the, the oxalic acid diathesis. Mm-hmm. And it was very clear back then, the diagnostic uh Recognition always included gut health problems as a central feature of the disease. And you see this over and over again in the real world people I work with where they have stomach issues, digestive issues, all kinds of gut related issues. And the more that goes on, the more you have gut issues, the more you are going to not be able to protect yourself from the dietary oxalates because more of it can get into your body. Right, it seems like a vicious so cycle a, because it's like a chicken and egg. Process. Yes, exactly. So, for example, we we know that people who've had uh, uh, operations that shorten their gut, you know, perhaps they've had a uh, cancer resection, or maybe they've had uh, part of their gut taken out for diverticulitis, or maybe they've had some kind of gastric bypass uh, procedure for weight loss, bariatric surgery, uh, that they're more likely to get kidney stones. So, is that because of the changes in the microbiome that somehow should some way uh, mitigate the effects of dietary oxalates and that changes when you have a gut surgery? 
it's mostly an absorption problem. And mm -hmm. some of this gut surgery, for example, ruin my bypass or the ruin my gastric, you know, bariatric surgery, 50% of them end up with kidney stone problems and oxalate related problems, most of which is unrecognized. It's like mm -hmm. systemic oxalate problems. But one of the issues there is that your um, fat digestion is compromised. And the less you're able to digest your fat, the more the oxalate can be absorbed, partially because the fat ties up the calcium mm -hmm. that would slow absorption of oxalate. And you have other problems that it just creates a kind of chronic stress mode in the gut. And I think there's something going on with intestinal permeability there where you become a hyperabsorber. You don't even need a really high oxalate diet if you're a hyperabsorber. So instead of the standard, say, 10% absorption, you could be a 60% mm -hmm. absorber. So just your occasional french fries and this and that, you, you could be getting too much oxalate. And that kind of situation where you have chronic gut inflammation uh, puts a person in a certain metabolic stress mode that makes it even less uh, safe for them to be exposed to oxalate, that puts the liver in a more chronic inflammatory mode, which will increase, increase endogenous production of oxalate, which is another thing we might want to Yeah, well, let's, let's get into that because but there I is... With, oh, go ahead, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I, I well, was you, you had asked about... You had asked about, now I'm forgetting what <laughs> the other side of your question. I didn't get to the other piece you had asked about. Yeah, I was going to ask about, uh, you know, the microbiome, and, and there is this. Oh, yeah, uh, the microbiome, exactly. Yeah, there's this theory about oxalobacter, so you know, the oxalobacter yeah, formigenes, which the is. Thing is yeah, that is, the point of these bacteria in the colon, the way they work is they tell the colon it's time to excrete oxalate from the blood. Mm -hmm. The absorption of oxalate is occurring in the stomach and the upper small intestine, and the, the bulk of it is moved into the body within four hours of consumption. But your main microbiome that we're talking about is in the colon, which is 12 hours down the pike. So what the bacteria are doing allow us to pull it back out of the bloodstream later. But it's almost too late because you've already exposed your immune cells and your vascular tissue and your liver to high amounts of oxalate in those four to eight to 12 hours following the meal. So Sally, there's actually, I've noticed that uh, there's some research in, you know, on probiotics where they're trying to harness the potential benefits of certain flora. Uh, one of the candidates is oxalobacter formigenes, which, which you're familiar. Uh, that is it's kind of like a Pac-Man for oxalate. That's my understanding. Uh, can you, can you speak to that issue? Uh, and actually, I think they're, you can't get it in the United States, but I, I actually saw a product uh, sold in India, which is for people with kidney stones. It's a probiotic that's supposed to reduce the risk of oxalic acid uh, kidney stones. Right. So there have been several companies working for the last 30 or 40 years trying to find the holy grail product for this. Yeah. There's new ones coming down the pike that's looking at ecosystems of bacteria because you cannot get this by itself to colonize. You need to it's not a one -off, put it there with an ecosystem. Yeah. Right. But all of that is not addressing the fact that this is too far down the exposure route to be that effective as a preventive. Mm -hmm. And the reason we're missing this is because we're assuming that kidney stones is the end point and that if you're getting it out so it doesn't, so you're protecting the kidneys from all of this oxalate coming through there because the body does not have a way to break it down or metabolize oxalic acid and crystals 
itself, it only can excrete it. And the kidney's job is to take care of the oxalate amongst many other toxins. Most of the oxalate we excrete and a typical metabolism is coming to the kidney. So what in these studies, we assume the proper endpoint is kidney stone. Mm-hmm. When in fact, what the research is showing is that within 40 minutes of one of those fabulous spinach smoothies, you've got damaged circulating immune cells that are now putting out pro-inflammatory cytokines and they themselves are injured enough that they're not very good at protecting us from infection. Mm-hmm. And so what we're talking about are more pervasive systemic effects. So let's go through some of those. Like how might a person uh, become aware that they uh, are a candidate for this uh, susceptibility, oxalate sensitivity or oxalate uh, overload? Yeah, it's really an overload thing that, that looks like a sensitivity, but it's, it's sort of a toxicity that's getting bad enough that the symptoms start peeking through. And sometimes if you, if you were, have the privilege of knowing that maybe four hours after you ate, like I, for me, it used to be sweet potatoes with some Swiss chard on the side. <laughs> that was enough that four hours later when I was trying to fall asleep, I would suddenly have an attack of belching um, and hiccuping. And it turns out that hiccups and belching are both signs of neurotoxicity, that the vagus nerve and the nerve and innervating the diaphragm muscle were now suffering with a hyperactivity because of the toxicity of the oxalates in my meal. And that those nerves turn on in this hyperstimulated way and cause muscle spasms that look like hiccups. And, and that same turned-on nervous system is the same nervous system that didn't let me sleep where my brain was waking up 29 times an hour because it couldn't stay settled down mm-hmm. because of my diet that usually had sweet potatoes in it twice a day. So what you're saying is the, the effects are so pervasive that they transcend the GI tract, get into systemic circulation, and even cross the blood-brain barrier so you can have various types of what seem to be neurodegenerative diseases or uh, psychiatric problems even, mood, mood effects. Absolutely. And this, to me, was the most surprising thing. How many followers and clients tell me that their lifelong problems with anxiety just disappear? Years of restless legs disappear. It's phenomenal how it does cross the blood-brain barrier, and it's such a small little compound. You're talking two carbons. This is a tiny little molecule that can get into cells. And when it isn't around cells, it damages membranes in a way that causes calcium to spill into cells. So a lot of these sort of calcification problems are because cells are injured in a way that they lose control over their calcium. It would make sense that a molecule that is a calcium chelator that turns into calcium oxalate is messing up cells at the most fundamental level. Mm-hmm. And the nervous system is the most sensitive. And I really believe now, based on my research, that that all of this neuroaging that's going on with these dementia concerns and so on, it, it, all things neuro, whether it's mood, performance, memory, is some form of toxicity that oxalate's able to create. There's um, some research showing that in a little piece of the brain that's related to Parkinson's disease, they find oxalate crystals. Wow, that's profound. Eyesight, so- eyes are the surface of the brain. That's amazing. I've had four people tell me they've reversed their cataracts. Many people, their blurry vision goes away. Their night vision improves. 
the eyes are just the surface of the brain, and they're very prone to oxalate accumulation like kidneys and thyroid glands are and bones, bone marrow. These are all critical tissues of the body that oxalate gets stuck in. What about the condition of vulvodynia? There was a popular diet, uh, oh, actually, it must have been decades ago, uh, which proposed a low-oxalate diet for women suffering from chronic vaginal pain in the absence of obvious precipitants like uh, bacterial or yeast infections. Uh, just a, a, it's, uh, it's thought to be a nerve-related problem because uh, it's not about uh, some imbalance in their in their uh, flora in the in the vagina. You're right to connect this with this neuro discussion we're having. It's yeah. all part of the neurotoxicity and the pro-inflammatory nature of an oxidative compound. So when you get cellular injury, you get unhappy nerves. That turns on the nervous or the immune system, who's like, you know, looking for problems, and the immune system is finding problems and responding, and you get this inflammatory crisis that is chronic and can keep getting fed by the diet. We owe a great debt of gratitude to the Vulgar Pain Foundation, which is in North Carolina, headed and founded by Joanne Young, because she she's the one who said publicly, this can fix pelvic pain. And she devoted herself and her work for 30 years, she's still in action, to testing foods. And if it wasn't for her making people aware that dietary oxalate can cause problems other than kidney stones, and that we needed more accurate food testing. As we started out, you know, the, the textbooks that those of us in the health field have have been reading are wrong, and just what foods are even high in oxalate, and she has worked to correct that. So without her, I wouldn't have been experimenting with, oh, I need to be paying attention to oxalate to begin with, because it was, for me, a short three-day bout of vulvar pain that is horrendous that got me aware that oxalates goes beyond the kidney stone. I, you know, I knew from school, from my profession, that kidney patients should be oxalate aware. But I had no idea that somebody like me with aches and pains and fatigue needed to be aware of oxalate. It's my impression that there's a, a fungal connection or a, a, a mold connection to oxalates. Can you explain how that could be? Well, oxalate is... Um, made by a lot of molds in the soil and aspergillus mold the black mold makes oxalate and so if you're in a moldy environment you have oxalate in your air and you're breathing oxalate Hmm. so that can be an issue and when you have a compromised here's a combination of things that eating too much oxalate can create barrier function of your gut and your mucous membranes of the lungs bronchial you know ear nose and throat and, and bladder can all be damaged by oxalates and for many reasons which we haven't even gotten into yet. So you have barrier function damage and you have immune system damage where the immune system is less good at fighting infection. That combination will set you up for chronic infection. And what I see with the people who come to me getting advice is that there are long-time struggles with infections of all kinds, including fungal infections, finally resolve. After sometimes it takes a couple of years on this diet, but they disappear. 
Well, it's known that some people develop aspergillosis, which is an infection, a very serious infection of the lungs. Generally, these people are immunocompromised, but aspergillus can sometimes appear in the nasal tract. It can appear in the GI tract. And so, in effect, yep. is it uh, like a, a factory for oxalate that kind of adds to your body burden? Yeah. Yes, you'll often see localized oxalate collecting there. And what they usually fail to measure is how much they, you get distributive effects where that oxalate is getting blood-borne and getting traveling around the body and hooking up elsewhere. But for sure, the, especially with the lung, the lung infection, you'll see oxalate crystals in the lung that are big enough that it's obvious to the most casual pathologist. Wow. All right. Well, this is uh, certainly... Uh uh, an entirely new perspective on something that we thought was confined to, you know, kidney stones, not much else. But uh, as you point out, we really need to look at oxalate as the culprit in a wide variety of health problems. Uh, we're going to expand on our discussion in part two, and you know, we'll talk a little bit about diagnostics. How do you know that you might have an oxalate problem? Uh, we'll talk about uh, some of the other uh, symptoms, and we'll talk about uh, solutions, because what can you do? Uh, where do the standard food tables go wrong? Uh, how can you garner the benefits of a plant-based diet? Because we know there are benefits to fiber and polyphenols uh, without incurring the risk of a oxalate overload. And, uh, and, and should one completely go carnivore to avoid... Uh, oxalates is that uh, a bridge too far our guest is sally norton she's written a great book on this subject and i'm sure there's a lot more detail in the book uh it's entitled toxic superfoods how oxalate overload is making you sick and how to get better she's got a website with a lot of resources it's sally k norton.com n-o-r-t-o-n and uh, you'll find more resources there uh sally stay put because we'll be right back with more of today's Intelligent Medicine, I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman.